So what's in it for me? That's a question we hear a lot in our world, don't we? It's, it's kind of a common um, phrase of a culture that seems determined to, uh, to get more than it gives. What's in it for me? Sure, I'll consider joining your organization, but what's in it for me? Sure, I'll consider coming to work for you, but what's in it for me? Uh, sure, I'll consider doing your chores, <laughs> right? But, but what's in it for me? You know, what do we get out of this? You know, this, this seems to be a, a very common sort of phrase in our culture. And I think a lot of times when we hear it, we think, mm, my, what selfish people. But it's really not a completely unreasonable request, is it? I mean, often we have to do a cost-benefits analysis to use language from, an, uh, from business. We have to understand, you know, if this is really a good deal or not. Suppose someone offers you a new job. You know, it's... Um, it's not unreasonable to say to them, uh, you know, what's in it for me? I mean, why should I change from one job to another? I mean, maybe suppose someone offers you a job and, and it, it gives you more time, less hours at work, more time to mow your grass, which I know you cannot wait to do, can you? Oh, did that sound good, mowing grass? You can almost smell it. Or maybe it's more money or better health care coverage or higher rank. I mean, there are a lot of other reasons that someone might consider going from one company to another. Maybe there are even non-tangible benefits. Suppose someone works for company A, doing a job they really hate. They can't stand it every day. They get up and go to work. They just, they just loathe what they do. And, um, and so someone comes along from company B, offers them another job, a job they would really love and find great meaning and, and purpose in, but it doesn't have as much money. The what's in it for me question may be, am I willing to sacrifice in order to find more meaning and more meaning in my work and more meaningful vocation? The question what's in it for me might be the gateway to doing something good. Who knows? Years ago, it almost seems like another life now, I used to work with teenagers all the time. I, um, I was uh, a part of a, a, of a larger city church, and, um, and I was an associate pastor. My job was to, uh, to do ministry to teenagers, and it was wonderful. We had a, a really fruitful ministry, was there for uh, several years, and, and became so attached to these teenagers that, you know, I, I don't know how many of their weddings I've performed, and, and uh, we're still good friends. They're in their 30s now with children, and, and we're still very close with so many of them. But I remember when I first started working in this teen ministry, I had a real challenge to overcome. It was the boredom factor. Oh my, you know, teens, for all their many wonderful attributes, don't have a real accommodation sort of skill. And so they really needed someone to sort of entertain them, make them, uh, make them find a sense of novelty in every meeting. And so our meetings were pretty, pretty normal. You'd come together, we would do a few games, we'd sing a few songs, I'd do a, a message from the Bible, and that sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? But try week after week coming up with a better game, you know, a, a more novel approach to a relay or a challenge or something, finding new ways for guys and girls to be next to each other in touch perhaps, but not to become overly aggressive towards one another. You know, it was, um, it was a challenge every time. And, and soon uh, I realized that what the teens were asking for, what's in it for me? What am I getting out of this? You know, it was a very adolescent way of looking at the life of the church. And perhaps I don't think I always did things well because I, I kind of fed that sometimes 
instead of challenging it. St. Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome. And I would really kind of encourage you today to, to maybe slip your bulletin into your lap and, and flip it open to that page from Romans chapter 5 as we look at this, this text. Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome because there are all kinds of problems going on in the church. Let me just tell you something. If there's a letter in the New Testament, it's not because, in almost every case, there are a couple... It's not because Paul or John or Peter is so happy to tell everybody what a great job they're doing. I mean, they do that, but it's usually as an aside. Most of the letters in the New Testament are written because there are serious problems in the church. I'm, I'm relieved to know that it took less than one generation for the church to be completely corrupt and full of problems. But Paul writes this letter, his longest letter, to the church of Rome. But he's savvy. Paul is a savvy pastor. He doesn't come out and hammer the church right away and tell them, uh, you guys are full of baloney and you really need to get your act straight. He doesn't do that. Paul is a subversive. You know all pastors are subversive, don't you? If you knew what we were up to, you would fire us. Okay, but uh, he's, really, he's really subversive. And you're really wondering, oh no, what is he up to? Uh, he's really subversive. And, and he's trying to get to them another way. He begins first half, in fact, the first 12 chapters, he's writing really to say, look, recognize who you are and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You can tell the part of the problem in Paul's letter, in the, Paul's letter to the Romans, or part of the problem which the Romans were dealing, was this issue of Jew and Gentile inclusion in the church. Perhaps you know, Jewish people keep kosher. They're concerned about their dietary restrictions. They watch the calendar meticulously. And Jewish Christians of the first century were, were Christian. They were, they were genuinely Christian. And yet they were still thoroughly Jewish. Now, that wasn't a conflict. It still isn't a conflict, to be honest with you. But for them, it, it, this, they were thoroughly Jewish and yet thoroughly Christian. And then you have Gentiles who were thoroughly not Jewish. They cared nothing about keeping kosher. They found it to be a, a, a nonsensical practice for Gentiles. They were affirmed in this. And so there's this real tension in the church. And Paul, instead of addressing that issue right off, he saves it for about 14 chapters, <laughs> telling them, look at what God has done for you. He even says this, the good news of the gospel, and this is really important to understand, the good news of the gospel is that God in Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and rose again. That is the good news. And if you believe in that good news, God's court of law, in which all humans are judged guilty, those who believe in that message, that God was in Jesus Christ, He died on the cross, He rose again, are declared righteous. The technical word that Paul uses is justified. They are said to be good. God looks at a person who exercises faith in Jesus and says, that person is good. They're righteous in my sight. Paul says that ought to be a cause for celebration. That's really good news. You are justified by exercising faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. It takes nothing else. It's, you're not justified because you do good things. You're not justified because you work hard enough at it. You're not justified because you wear the right clothes or say the right words or use the right language or pray in the right way. It's not even because of what version of the Bible you use or whether you like the Book of Common Prayer or not. 1928, 79, I don't care what you like. 
None of that really matters. You know what matters? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? That He died and rose again. And I think died and rose again as a part of one whole formula. That makes us good in God's sight. Well, fantastic. Once I believe that, <laughs> what's in it for me? Oh, you know. Oh, you know, the benefits of heaven, right? Pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. You know that? You remember? But not that. Paul doesn't say, read chapter 5. It, he holds off on that. The word heaven doesn't appear. Because, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That's how he says it, right? Look, at, look, at, look down for just a second. Don't look down for a long time. Just say, therefore, since we have been justified. Since, because we have already been justified by faith. I want to give you just a few things. There are too many I want to stay here all day and just, just hammer on this text. But I know you don't. So I'm going to give you just a few. We have, number one, peace with God. Paul's predicate, the very first thing he assumes is every person, man, woman, child, every person who has ever lived since Adam and Eve have been born with the same problem. We are all at war with God. We are born into this world, sweet little babies, already at war with God. And our whole lives, that's what we do. We fight, we war, we're enemies with God. We want God's job. We want to be in charge of ourselves. We can do just fine without you, thank you very much, we would say. We're at war. I think different kinds of war. There are cold wars and hot wars, aren't there? Even in our, our regular world, we have, for ten years lived with a hot war. Tanks and planes and bombs. You know, when you lob bombs at one another and they lob them back, you know, that's called a hot war. You're actually using guns. You're, you're aggressively at war with one another. Go to the bookstore. God is not great. Christopher Hitchens. The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins. That's what I call hot war. Enmity with God. They are just, we're going to go after God. Don't you find it, just as an aside, a little ironic that so much ink is spilled on someone who doesn't exist? I, I mean, I think it's kind of funny. But here they are, lobbing bombs at God. But there's a lot of Cold War going on too, isn't there? Indifference towards God. And not spending a lot of time thinking about God. Organizing our lives as if God doesn't exist. Sure, not writing books, not out attacking the identity of God, but at the same time, very much at war with God. Paul says, when you believe that God in Jesus Christ died and rose again on you, for you, He did this for you, you are justified. And the very first thing that happens is that you're at peace with God. No more war. No more fighting. You're on the same side. You're friends with God. And that is really good news, isn't it? But he goes on, not just, are we friends with God? Notice, look at verse 2. Look at it down. I don't, is the number in there? Through Him, that is through Christ, look at the second half of this, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Whew, that's a mouthful, isn't it? We have obtained access. If I could have you underline just a few words, if you had a pen with you, I would tell you to do this. You don't have to dig a pen out. But if you had one, here's what I would tell you to do. Underline obtained access. Maybe do it in your mind. Underline grace and underline stand. We have obtained access into this grace, under grace, in which we stand. 
the first phrase, obtained access. It kind of sounds like um, what happens at the movie theater. You know, the, the, the right? I like two tickets for whatever, and then you get two tickets. For, you know, for me, it's always six tickets. You know, I, I, here's a here's $1,000. Okay, and, uh, and you go into the film, and then there's the usher guy, right? You know this guy. Um, he says, can I have your tickets, please? And you hand him the tickets that you bought, and he tears them up as if to mock you, and then hands them half of them back to you, and he says, okay, and now go into number two or five or whatever. That's not obtained access in this passage. In this passage, it's a little different. Imagine, imagine the queen or perhaps the president has invited you to come and meet them. They invite you and you show up at, their, at the White House or at the palace or, or wherever you happen to go. You don't walk in and meet the queen or the president, do you? You walk in and you're shown a waiting room and, and someone comes and gets you after you've waited a while because the person you're going to see is important. And they take you to that person. This is the word Paul says. We have obtained access. We have been invited in. We have been ushered into something. Into what? Into grace. Grace and mercy are often confused. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. It's when the governor says, I signed up hard and you're free to go, even though you deserve to be punished. That's mercy. Grace is not like that. Grace comes from the word gift. This is when God or someone gives you something that you don't deserve. You know how it goes on your birthday, right? Your friend shows up at the door, knock on the door, and, and you go and you open the door, and, and there they stand with this big giant package. It's got a big bow on it. It's wrapped in foil, wrapping paper. And they just stand there and you eventually let them in, right? And they're standing there holding this gift. You, you see this. It's happened, right? And they're holding this gift and you're trying not to look at this gift, even though it's your birthday and you know it's for you, right? And you're looking around it like you're not looking at the gift and, and, uh, and they stick it out there and you say, oh, is that for me? And you, they say, yes, of course it's for you, silly, right? It's your birthday. This is for you. And what do you say? You shouldn't have. That's exactly what you say. Of course you shouldn't have. If they should have, it would have been payment. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. We have been ushered into something we don't deserve. What is it? Salvation. And more than that even, it's the ability to stand. This is, this is about security. You have been ushered into a secure relationship with the Almighty. You're at peace with Him. And you have access to Him. And you stand secure before Him. Listen, none of your children probably wake up and worry about whether they're going to stay in your family that day. No matter what they do, they're still going to be part of the family. Oh, you're right. They can do something to which they'll actually get you to say, you're out of the family for a while until you change your... That, that can happen. But that's an extreme case, isn't it? It's the exception that proves the rule. We stand firm before God, not because we deserve it, but because it's a gift given to us. Every day we can face the Almighty and not be afraid. We're at peace with Him. And He welcomes us in and causes us to stand secure in His presence. Oh, there's so much more, but I've got to get one more. Not only... Do we have peace with God? And not only are we able to stand secure before the Almighty, but he also says this. Look at verse 3. You're not going to believe this. This guy has gone absolutely stark raving mad. St. Paul must be a madman. 
Because he says, at least this is the way I read it in my English version, and I read it in Greek, it's the same way. We rejoice in our sufferings. Who does that? Who rejoices in their sufferings? Not me. You should hear me when I suffer. I mean, it doesn't even take a little bit. A rock in my shoe, and I whine like a mule. You know, sufferings are not something I rejoice in. Imagine you're hiring somebody. You you want them to come to work for you. Maybe you've done this before. You're writing an ad for the newspaper. A wanted field technician, great pay, super benefits, includes endless suffering. (laughs) Do you expect a lot of replies from that job? No! But but St. Paul is saying to us that we can even rejoice in suffering. Why? Because suffering produces something. It produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Even when we suffer, Paul says, we can look back and find meaning in our suffering. We don't suffer like other people. Everyone suffers, but our suffering has meaning. There's a purpose behind it. So Paul, what's in all this for me? The hope of heaven? Absolutely. It's there. Dig for it. This afternoon, see if you can find three more. Okay, in this passage, there are, there are more. The hope of heaven? Yes, it's there. But it doesn't even get first billing, does it? Peace with God. The ability to stand firm and confident in the presence of the Almighty. Meaning in our suffering. Because we believe in Jesus Christ, our life is different now, today. It is very different here. We are already, this very moment, living in kingdom reality. If only we exercise faith in the God who became human being, lived, died on a cross, and rose again. Believe that. Have faith in that that reality that God has done that for you. You're at peace with God. You have power to stand before the Almighty. And your life has real meaning, even when you suffer. Amen.